Well, it's good to see you here. Uh, for those of you like me who are incredibly tactile, this is an awful time. We can't, I can't hug anyone or, you know, or, or do all this, but um, hopefully it'll be just for a season. Can I also, uh, can I also say that it is Joylin's birthday today. Happy birthday. It's so great. She won't tell me how old she is, uh, which is very wise. Okay. Um, there are some sermons that are easy to preach. There are some that are a bit more difficult, and there are some that are just downright awful to preach because they're in your face, they're confrontational, and they're challenging. Well, be prepared because this morning's is one of the latter ones. I'm not sure if Canadians have the same phrase, but in the UK... We have a saying, bottled it, (laughs) bottled it, he bottled it. Do we have that saying here? I've not not heard it here. No, no, I'll explain. Collins Dictionary (laughs) describes it thus. If you say that someone has bottled it, you mean that they have lost their courage at the last moment and have not done something they intended to do. He bottled it. The online urban dictionary is a little more colourful in its description. When someone decides to opt out of a rather nerve-wracking task, instead of just growing some gonads and doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Bottled it. Let me use it in a sentence. In spite of his fear of heights, Phil wanted to go on the London Eye. But when he got there, he totally bottled it. When you you bottle it, you become a bottler. Let me tell you of a time when I totally bottled it. And the consequences that led uh, and followed from it. It was in the winter of 1977. And my school rugby team, St. George's. It's nothing like St. George's in Vancouver, by the way. (laughs) We were competing in the Gravesend Under-13 semi-final. Against our arch-rivals, Collier Road School. Now, I'm not saying Collier Road was a rough school. But teachers would come to work with their lunch and a can of pepper spray. (laughs) Their rugby team mirrored the school. The team had recently been bolstered by the reintroduction of their star player, Mad Dog Mike, who had just been released from a juvenile detention center for beating up the referee in one of the previous games. Needless to say, it was going to be a rough game. Before the game started, our coach gathered us around in a circle and gave us a Churchillian address. Stand your ground. Don't give an inch. Match their physicality. Tackle hard. 
remember to go all in. And whatever you do, don't bottle it. The match starts. And it was a tough game. Fights, punches thrown, eyes gouged. And that was just in the crowd. <laughs> it was 12-12. And we entered the last five minutes. Five minutes of the game. This is when Mag Dog got the ball. And started galloping downfield. And he, and he brushed aside two of our players. And then to my horror... I noticed that he was running directly at me. The only thing I, that could stop him scoring the winning try was little old me. But I was up for it. My coach's words were ringing in the air. Stand your ground, tackle hard. Trevor, don't bottle it. I was going in for the tackle. I was there. And I, I'm not sure whether it was a little voice in my head or the manic, psycho-looking uh, mad dog's eyes. But I was suddenly aware of what I was about to do. And yes, you guessed it, I bottled it. Instead of going in hard for the tackle... I sort of waved my hand in the general direction. And I got steamrolled by Mad Dog. When I eventually woke up on the sidelines, I was told that we had lost the game and Trevor, you bottled it. And I learned a lesson that day. If you're going to bottle it, make sure you bottle it completely. <laughs> Never go in half-hearted. Because if you do, you'll get hurt. Have you ever bottled it? Have you ever compromised on something? Compromised on doing something you knew you had to do? Let's be honest, we all have. We're not alone. But sometimes compromise, just like Mad Dog, can damage us. It has consequences. And one of those consequences is, is that it can lead to a half-hearted life to a life that we weren't born to live. We're in Egypt. We're in ancient Egypt, in fact. We're in the book of Exodus, and we're seeing a battle that's going on. In the red corner, we have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Hebrew nation, uh, the nation that's being held in captivity and slavery. Uh, and in the other corner... We have Pharaoh and 114 of their Egyptian gods representing the richest, most advanced and most powerful nation in the known world. And the winner gets to determine the destiny of the Hebrew people. 
As the clash once said, do they stay or do they go now? I believe it was the clash. Yeah, good. Okay. There's some people in their 20s here who have no idea what I'm talking about. But, but what we're actually seeing in this battle is that it's actually no contest. No contest at all. There's only going to be one winner. But Pharaoh's digging his heels in, and he won't let the people go. And so what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is God sending plagues over Egypt. Why plagues? Why these plagues? Well, firstly, it was God in his mercy answering a question that Pharaoh asked Moses in Exodus chapter 5. When he said, Who? Pharaoh said, who's this Lord? that I should obey his voice. And God, through the plague, says, you want to know who I am? Well, here it is, buddy boy. And these plagues were not random. Each plague is an attack on one or more of the Egyptian gods. It was God saying to the people, okay, you put your trust in these gods. You follow these gods in order to find freedom and true life. But let me tell you that they're a lie. It's folly. Let me show you that there's only one true God to trust and follow. Let me show you I am who I am. And so we looked at three of the plagues last week, which hardened Pharaoh's heart even more. So more plagues would come. And so this morning we're going to look at the next four. At City View this morning we're going to have flies, dead cows, boils, hail and Arlene spaghetti. (laughs) Only the first four are plagues. (laughs) The other one's nice, it's lunch. But here's what I want to do. I want to go through the four plagues very briefly But I want to focus on two particular instances uh, where Pharaoh bottles it. He has a chance to do the right thing, but he chooses to compromise, to seek a shortcut in order to obey God. And the difficult message for us through that is that if we want to truly know the life that Christ offers us, we need to be all in. We shouldn't be looking to take the easy way out. We should not seek compromise with God. Because ultimately, compromise will rob us of the freedom to live life. Real life. True life. If we compromise. Okay. Are you ready for some flies? Let's, uh, let's get some flies. We're going to be in Exodus 8 and 9. So if you, I'm going to be dipping in and out of it. So you might want to sort of uh, have that open in front of you. I'm going to read this uh, passage on the flies, though, first of all. Okay, this is chapter uh, 8, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I'm going to send swarms of flies on you and your 
officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. But on that day I will deal differently with the land of uh, Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there. So that you know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I'll make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, No, 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 that's not right. The sacrifice we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the uh, Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I'll let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but don't go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave. Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left uh, Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not one fly remained. But guess what? This time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Okay, a load of flies going on here. Now, before we get to Pharaoh bottling it, why the flies? Well, again, this is attacking, mocking, discrediting an Egyptian god that the people put their trust in. This one, Kipri, or however you want to pronounce it. Uh, This uh, was one of the creation gods. It was depicted with a fly's head, as you can see. And people pray to this God to control the effects of nature. So when a plague of flies come to threaten their livelihood and their crops, they would all get on their knees and pray to this God. But again, God is our God, the God of the Hebrews is saying, wrong God, folks. This one's a lie as well. And notice that God is stepping up the ante here. From now on, the plagues will only affect the Egyptians, not the Hebrew nation. That's what he says here. And this would have infuriated the people even more, wouldn't it? They're walking around and they're covered in flies. And there's Charlie Hebrew over there walking around. Oh, there's no, in a no-fly zone. So... (laughs) But the most interesting thing about this plague is how Pharaoh responds to it. Did you notice that? Look at verse 25. He says, uh, go sacrifice to your God here in the land. You see, what he's doing here, the demand on Pharaoh is to let the people go out of the land 
into the wilderness where they can hold a feast and worship and sacrifice to God. But, but Pharaoh says, here's my counteroffer. You can sacrifice, but do it here in the land. Let's make a deal. You can sacrifice, but not outside Egypt. It has to be here. He's trying to bargain with God. Have you ever had to haggle over something? I'm useless at haggling. Um, really not very good at it. We were in uh, Ghana one time. And we went into the marketplace and I saw this blanket that I liked. And I asked the lady there, I said, can you tell me how much for the blanket? 400 CD. I said, okay, sounds good. Thanks. I'll take it. And she looked at me. And she said, no! That's not how it works. Oh, okay. She said, you have to haggle. We have to haggle first to get to a price. So I said, oh, okay. And she explained what I had to do. And so, so we started that haggling. And so I said, how much for the blanket? And she said, 600 CD. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, you just told me 400. Anyway, so I, I played the game. I said, 300, 550, 350, 475, 400, 425, final offer. And I ended up paying 425. <laughs> because I haggled. Go figure. I mean... But can you see that's what Pharaoh is doing here? Okay, God, let's, let's come to an agreement, a compromise. I won't go all in with you because it actually doesn't make sense to me. Let's meet halfway. But guys, can I tell you something? That each one of us needs to know this morning, when it comes to obedience... God does not haggle. When it comes to obedience, he does not compromise. He calls us to be all in. He calls us to fully commit to follow him. Why? Is it because he's stubborn and he's like childlike saying, it's my way or no way? It's because he knows that if we go in half-hearted, we'll hurt ourselves. And we'll miss out on the fullness of life and freedom that he offers us. And even half-obedience could lead to damage and hurt, just like me tackling Mad Dog. It has to be all or nothing. guy at uh, one of my previous churches, he, he was on fire for God. He had a real burden and a passion to reach out to new uh, Chinese immigrants in downtown, in Chinatown. And he was on fire for the Lord and he was doing this and God was uh, blessing his work. And then all of a sudden, he found a girlfriend. And then he thought, I need a proper job. 
this isn't paying enough. And he gave up what he was doing. And I met him again about two months ago. Can I just tell you that he's a miserable so-and-so now. He's got a condo downtown. He has a good life, but he's miserable. Why? Because he compromised. God was saying, I want you all into this. And he was blessing his time. And then it, it went. I was thinking about our friend um, Ami. Ami, you know, who started this Beyond the Conversation, dealing with loneliness uh, in, our, in our city. She's not playing at this. She's gone all in. And God is blessing her work. She could have said, ah, I want to do this, but not so fast. She's all in. You see, so often we play games with God. God says, here's what I want you to do and where I want you to go. And we say, you know, I get what you're trying to do, God. I kind of see the big picture. I understand it. But here's the deal. If I do that, that's not economically going to be a good decision for me. If I do that, People are going to think I'm a weirdo. If I do that, then my life isn't going to look like the life that I want. So how about I do this? And we haggle with God. We compromise. And we end up thinking we've been obedient when actually we haven't. Pharaoh is haggling with God over obedience. I see what you're saying, but this isn't going to work for me. Let's see if we can make this a win-win, Lord. And God, through Moses and Aaron, says, no. Compromising with God ain't going to work. I told you it was going to be a tough sermon. We're going to come back to compromise in a minute, but let's get some dead cows. Uh, The next plague, you can read about it in Exodus 9, uh, 1 to 7. But let me summarize it. Basically, God says, okay, your livestock are going to be struck down. Horses, donkeys, cattle, sheep, camels. This plague would have had uh, created an enormous economic disaster for Egypt. Because it it would have affected everything. It affected their food, transportation, military capacity, farming capacity that was all produced by these livestock. And cattle in Egypt weren't just highly valued. They were also considered sacred. It's a bit like when we went to India. You can run over as many people as you want in the road, and they do over there. But heaven help you if you hit Daisy the cow. Because if you hit Daisy the cow, Daisy the cow's a god. And Daisy the cow is sacred. And so, uh, and it's the same here in Egypt. The Egyptians worship cattle. And they worship them through the goddess Hathor, who was depicted with the head of a cow. Not the best look, I grant you. She, apparently she was the goddess of love. 
um, love and protection. And people would pray to her when this plague come. You know, protect us, protect us, protect us. And again, the Lord says, how's, how's your God doing in the protection business? Thought so. But again, Pharaoh doesn't budge. And then we get to the next plague. The next plague, which is the most physically painful plague so far, the plague of boils. You can read about it again in uh, verses 8 to 12, chapter 9, 8, 8 to 12. This, this one is unannounced. And the Egyptians worshipped several healing gods. And on occasion, what they would do, even sacrifice human beings to these gods. And the victims, what happened was they were burnt on an altar and their ashes were cast into the air where the wind would blow over Egypt, producing blessings over Egypt. But God mocks this idea because he tells Moses to, to throw soot from the furnace up in the air and the wind takes it, and instead of producing blessings, it produces boils, festering boils on all the Egyptian people and the animals. And this plague would have been an affront to a number of the Egyptian gods of healing, in particular Isis, Isis, the, uh, the goddess of medicine and of peace. God's saying, Lie, lie, not worth it. Come to me. And yet Pharaoh's heart is still hard. So, if you're keeping count, here comes plague number seven. Well done. Plague number seven, the plague of hail. Um, let's read, actually, let's read few verses of this in uh, chapter 9. Uh, plague of hail. I'm going to read 22 to 25. Have we got that here? No, we haven't. Okay. Uh, 22 to 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt, on men and women and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and women and animals, it beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place that it didn't fall was on the Israelites. The plague of hell. Now, we in Vancouver suffer this plague every year from uh, November through to March. In fact, I think we had some yesterday as well. As I was walking home, that was, yeah, but I don't know if that was God trying to speak to me. But, um, but you see, here in Egypt, this plague would have been really unusual. Because in the region that it took place, 
that receives only about two inches of rain a year. And this plague was another devastating attack on the country and their gods. You remember the Egyptians had already lost fish when the Nile turned to blood. The plague on the livestock killed off most of it. And animals still in the field at the time of the hailstorm, we're told, got struck down. So the Egyptians have now lost much of their source of food, of milk and meat. I mean, talk about difficult sanctions being placed on Egypt. And again, this plague is God discrediting the Egyptian gods and goddesses, a number of them. There were a few discredited here. Since this plague originated in the sky, the most prominent deity discredited was, the, uh, was Nut, uh, the sky goddess. Her job was to protect the skies over Egypt. Then there was Shu, the god of air and the bearer of heaven. Why didn't he stop this devastating storm? And where was Horus, the hawk-headed third member of the Egyptian trinity and sky god of upper Egypt? And what about Seth, god of storms and protector of crops? Or uh, Osiris, who was ruler of life and vegetation? Guys, can you see that there is no contest here? But here again, it's interesting to note Pharaoh's response to this plague. Verses 27, it says, uh, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. Come to Vancouver, buddy. I will not let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I've gone out of the city, I'll spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hell so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. Pharaoh's repenting. Or is he? Is this a full-blown, on-your-knees, heartfelt, gut-wrenching repentance? I don't think so. And, and, and Moses spots it a mile away. You see, Pharaoh's repentance is not fueled by guilt and sorrow, but purely by self-preservation. He's upset that he's got caught, and he wants the consequences of his sin to disappear but there isn't any real repentance here or he would start to walk in obedience and, and we're told that there's not because when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped he sinned again and, his, uh, and they hardened their hearts you see there's, there's no repentance here there's just sadness at the consequences of his sin. I think I've told you this story before about Hannah. Uh, Hannah, uh, one Easter, we, we had put all the Easter eggs up on the piano at home. And Hannah was about three or four. And um, there was about six or seven big Easter eggs. 
we were in the kitchen doing dinner or something and the other kids were playing upstairs and all of a sudden it went very quiet in the lounge. And we came in and we couldn't find Hannah and we couldn't find the Easter eggs, all six of them. And then suddenly we heard a rustling under the dining room table and there is three-year-old Hannah sitting there with all these Easter egg wrappers around her and chocolate all over. What have you done, Hannah? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. I've done anything. But you think I've done something? <laughs> and we said, Hannah, you've eaten the Easter eggs, haven't you? No. Hannah, you've eaten the Easter eggs, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> Hannah, will you go and say sorry to Amy, Sam, and Bethany that, uh, that you've eat, eaten the eggs? Well, go and say sorry. She went up to them and said, sorry! <laughs> and then ran away. You, your kid, if you've got kids, you know these stories. You know that these things happen. She was not sorry! She was sorry that she got caught, but she wasn't sorry for what she had done. I don't mean it. It's half-hearted. Pharaoh has a chance to do the right thing, to confess, to bow down to God and say, look, sorry, Lord. But what does he do? He bottles. Just like with obedience before, he's trying to compromise. Look, I'm sorry, okay, can we move on now? But again, God's saying that there can be no compromise over repentance. We cannot come to God and take repentance lightly. Why? Is it again because God is stubborn and he wants to wring every last morsel of uh, remorse out of us? Make us suffer. No, it's because if we only half repent, we'll still carry half of the guilt and shame in our lives. You see, when it comes to repentance, when it comes to obedience, we cannot compromise. We have to be all in or not in at all. And you see, here's the key. This is what it boils down to. It all depends on how much we want to surrender our lives to God. Let's be honest. All of us, we're prepared to offer sometimes half-hearted surrender. We want to give part of our lives to God. You can have that part, but you know what? I'll keep this part to myself, thank you. We want to go half in. And in a way, our culture and our society fuels this. We live in a culture that doesn't want to commit. We want to have a bit of everything. We live in a loosey-goosey world. Don't we? And that same attitude comes into our relationship with God. It's fine. It's fine if we don't do that. You know what? It's fine to wander into church, not ready to worship. That's okay. Oh, God will understand. 
it's fine if we don't do this. It, it's okay if we don't do the things we said we would do. That's okay. It's all right. It's okay. You know, we'll mix a bit of Jesus in with a bit of humanism and a bit of new age. It's okay. It'll be fine. It'll be fine to be half in. It's fine just to put an arm to stop mad dog. It'll be fine. Well, ultimately, dear friends, it won't be fine. It won't be fine to just play at following Jesus. It won't be just fine to play at obedience, play at repentance. It will come back to bite us. And ultimately, we will not experience the full life of freedom that Jesus offers. And our lives will just be a bit, you know. And then, when our life is just a bit, who do we blame? We blame God. I'm not seeing the returns here, Lord. I'm not seeing God working in my life at all. Someone said to me the other day, sermons should be a 10-minute TED-like talk. With a Bible verse thrown in. Make your sermons palatable and easy. Well, guys, sometimes God's word is not easy. Actually, most of the time it's not easy. It says some tough things. Things that we may not understand or even like. You know, it's great to talk about God's love and grace and forgiveness, but we must also talk about his holiness, his call to commitment, obedience and repentance. There was a chap, we were visiting a church in the UK once, and um, the pastor was was preaching uh, on obedience and, and the need for repentance. And the guy, halfway through, stood up. I just, no word of a lie, he stood up in the congregation. This is, you can't do this. But he stood up in the congregation and said, Colin, that, that was the pastor's name, Colin, you're making me depressed. I came here for something uplifting and you're depressing me. Guys, Hopefully, hopefully, I, I, I preach light and fluffy sermons sometimes. But this sermon is not easy to deliver. This message is a bit in your face and it is confrontational. You know, you've already lost an hour's sleep. <laughs> and now you get this. <sighs> but I wouldn't be doing my job if all I said was that following Jesus is easy. Following Jesus is rewarding. Following Jesus is life-giving. It is full of grace and mercy, but it ain't easy. It takes commitment. It takes obedience. It takes repentance. And at times that's going to be really inconvenient. And sometimes it will involve sacrifice and suffering. If you don't believe me, 
will you listen to Jesus? Because this is some of the things that he said. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Want some more? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. (sighs) This isn't easy stuff to hear, is it? Let alone easy stuff to follow. You know, I live my sermons and sometimes that's painful. This week I've had to examine my own life up against what I'm preaching to you this morning. And I've had to place my life up against those words of Jesus. And I'll be honest, I haven't liked what I've seen. I've held back so much of my life from Jesus. I've not surrendered my all to him. I've not been obedient to him. I've compromised in so many areas of my life. You know what? Yes, I can make a lot of excuses. Life's been tough recently. You know, it's been busy. There's been lots of illness around the family. And I've been frustrated and I've been impatient. Sometimes I've been frustrated with God. I could make those excuses, but ultimately the problem lies where? With me. With me. I've bottled it. I've not been the person that God wants me to be. I've not been the follower, the disciple that I need to be. And instead of haggling with God, instead of half repenting to God, I need to kneel down and recommit myself fully to Him. You see, if we want a rich life, a fulfilled life, if we want a free life to be who we are born to be, we need to be all in. No compromise. You know, Jesus saved the most harsh statement for some people going to a church in Laodicea. This is what he says in Revelation 3. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. All in, all out. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Those whom I love. These words are not to condemn. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. 
These are words of love. They're set in mercy and grace. They're reminding us that there really is no compromise when it comes to freedom in Christ. we willing when God calls us to tackle mad dog Mike are we willing to go all in or will we stick out a hand let's pray that's a tough message said in love. Father, thank you that you want the very best for us. Lord, that you want us to live life to the full. You want us to know the fullness of your love and your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And Lord, I know it breaks your heart when you see us go half in. want to give us so much more than we allow you to give us. Father, I pray that you would stir my heart again this morning, that you would stir each of our hearts, that Lord, you would, you would just, ah, Lord, you would, you would instill something in us that says, I want more than this. There must be more than this. Father, give us the courage to go all in. Give us the courage to obey you. Give us the humility to say sorry to you when we don't go all in. Father, change us. Please change me. By your Holy Spirit, would you come and change me? And make me be the person that I've been created to be. Thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your message to us today.